Welcome. You're listening to The Analytic Christian, where we explore topics in Christian philosophy and theology. I'm Jordan, and today we're asking the question, can belief in God be rational apart from arguments? My guest is Dr. Andrew Moon, a professor of philosophy at Virginia Commonwealth University. His answer to the question is yes, you can be rational for believing in God, even if you don't know any arguments for God's existence. This will be a really interesting discussion, so let's go ahead and begin. All right, well, let's jump into this paper that you wrote for a journal called Philosophy Compass. And um, in that paper, you do a very good job of introducing the main ideas for a view that um, has come to be known as Reformed epistemology. And uh, so can you just tell us first, what is Reformed epistemology? And who are some people, some philosophers that have held this view? Yeah. So in recent times, the person who probably did the most to uh, bring Reformed epistemology to the attention of philosophers is uh, Alvin Plantinga, who uh, taught at Notre Dame and Calvin. Uh, And it's called Reformed epistemology mainly because uh, Plantinga was drawing from John Calvin, the Reformed theologian. And so that's why it's called Reformed epistemology. Of course, not all Reformed theologians hold to Reformed epistemology, and you can hold to Reformed epistemology without being Reformed in your theology. Uh, but yeah, so planning is one, and uh, uh, William Alston. Uh, planning and Alston are probably the two most prominent uh, philosophers who have defended uh, Reformed epistemology. I could add uh, Nicholas Walterstorff at Yale and um, George Mervodis from Michigan and some others. So uh, yeah, that was all of the question, or... Uh, those are uh, those are definitely some people that hold it, and then just the the core of what reformed oh, what epistemology means. Well, for that, I uh, prepared with my technology. Uh, <laughs> I wrote it on a board. Uh, can you reformed epistemology? It's the view that religious belief can be rational, uh, even if the belief is not based on an argument. Uh, so religious yeah, belief can be is. rational. Even if yeah. there's there's it's not based on an argument, okay. That's right. So even yeah, yeah even if we don't have a good argument at all, uh, the theist can say I'm rational for believing in God. Yeah, and and if you go on a college campus and you go to that freshman dorm and people are arguing back and forth, should we believe in God or not? Uh, uh, you know, like undoubtedly, people will start banding for the reasons for and against believing in God. So, um, and then kind of the assumption behind that is in order to rationally believe in God, you need to be able to support it with a good argument or good justification. Yeah. And then reformed epistemology is denying that claim. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'll bring myself back in here so you all can see me as well. Um, this, this can tie in nicely to what you just said. So, what did Reformed epistemology arise in response to? Right. Yeah. So that's the, um, it's what Plantinga called the evidentialist objection to belief in God. And I think I have a slide on that, right? Yeah. I'll go ahead uh, and put it up. It's pretty simple. Yeah. Three steps. Yeah. Do you want to read it? Is, 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 let's see. Yeah. Uh, actually, I can't see it. I'll read it. I probably Okay, you go ahead and read it. Yeah. Yeah. So th- this kind of evidentialist argument against theistic belief says, 
Premise one, it is rational to believe in theism only on the basis of a good argument. Two, there is no good argument for theism. Three, therefore, it's not rational to believe in theism. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So so that argument, um, it's kind of more assumed when people say, you know, if you don't have a good reason or argument for believing in theism, then you're not rational in believing it. And traditionally, before planning up, people would attack that second premise, and they would try to say, no, we do have a good argument for belief in God. And they might say, where else could the universe have come from? Or how do you explain how design the world looks? Or uh, they, they might try to appeal to something like that to try to argue for God's existence. So um, standardly, the idea is they wanted to attack premise two. Um, but uh, I think it's actually the reformed epistemologist might be fine with attacking too. I mean, maybe the argument is bad for both reasons, both mm-hmm. premises, but uh, typically the reformed epistemologist attacks premise one. It says, well, you can rationally believe in God even if you don't have a good argument. That's right. Yeah, so I want to um, point, I want to try to emphasize that. So I've, I've got the argument pulled back up. Uh, yeah. It's very, yeah, like you said, the, um, the mindset of YouTube atheists and and uh, yeah. many people might be uh, that, you know, if I'm if I want to say that I'm rational for believing in God, I'm going to attack premise two on the screen. I'm going to try That's and true. say, here's some really good arguments for theism. Right. But we shouldn't be so quick necessarily to jump to that premise and yeah. say, let's attack that. Um, the point of reformed epistemology is let's look at this premise number one and right. really inspect that more closely. Uh, is it true that, you know, only if I have a good argument, then it's rational to believe? Is that true? Um, and so that's what I want to kind of, uh, focus on tonight. Yep. Cool. All right. So, um, in the paper, and by the way, uh, I forgot the title of the paper. I I meant to have it pulled up in front of me. Recent work in reformed epistemology. Recent work in reformed epistemology. Uh, published yeah. in Philosophy Compass, and I'm sure someone could uh, email you for that paper. I've also put the link to it in the yeah. description if if those watching want to go check it out. Uh, yeah. So someone named Jordan Matamoro, uh, Mejia, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh just yeah. said that's my professor. <laughs> yeah, he he's one of my students right now in my introductory ethics class. Hey, Jordan, thanks for watching. <laughs> um, so uh, in that paper you say that this evidentialist objection um, yeah. is a de jure, de jure objection. Right. And you say that that needs to be distinguished from a de facto objection. So yeah. what's the difference between a de jure objection and a de facto objection? Yeah. And most of your de jure, you'll be like, what is that? Right. Uh, well, so I, I wrote it out. Um, it's actually Latin. Um, and you're, you're more used to seeing de jure and de facto in law. And I I might not even be saying it right because I don't really know Latin. But planning, I use this terminology. So to attack uh, a de jure objection will attack the rationality of a belief. The de facto objection will attack the truth of a belief. So um, we could even drop the de jure and the de facto talk and just talk about truth and rationality to make it easier. Sure. Um, yeah, but we can go either way. And it's, I think it's important. It's one of the useful distinctions I think epistemologists uh, teach. 
Oh, by the way, you know, some people might not know what epistemology is. So epistemology is the study of knowledge or rational belief. It studies how we come to know or how we know what we know or how can we come to rational belief in something. So that's what epistemology is. Um, okay, so de jure objections, which is about rationality, um, uh, the, the way to understand that and how it's different from a de facto objection or a truth objection is uh, try to think of a case where you might have one without the other. So some people might be rational in believing something, even if the belief is false. Uh, a, a good example of that is um, th uh, thousands of years ago, you might have to go really far back, but at some point, it was, people, were really, we, people were rational in believing that the world was flat. Um, I think it was very reasonable to believe that, um, given the information they had. Uh, and, uh, but there was a reasonable belief, it was a rational belief. It wasn't a true belief, though. Uh, the world... Around, okay. Um, on the other hand, you can have a true belief that's not a rational belief. Uh, let's say I'm wondering, uh, um, is it going to rain tomorrow? And I shake my magic eight ball, dung, 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 dung. And it goes, yes, it will rain. And I go, ha ha, it'll rain. Okay, let's say that's a true belief. Uh, let, um, as in, like, I believe it's going to rain, and it just happens to rain that that uh, the next day, right? Mm -hmm. There I had a true belief. But I wasn't rational in believing it. I'm not rational in uh, believing on the basis of magic eight balls. So the idea is um, we should distinguish the difference between the truth of a belief and the rationality of belief. They come apart. The reason why we care about rationality is typically if your beliefs are rational, then they're going to be true. Um, uh, but not always. Sometimes the reasonable belief can lead you to falsehood. So I think that basic distinction uh, between rational belief and true belief helps us um, deal with all sorts of uh, mistakes people make in their thinking. Um, okay, so if you're going to make a de jure objection, you're going to be trying to argue that a certain belief is not rational, uh, meaning it's not formed in the right way or it's not formed on the basis of good evidence or something like that. Uh, now, if you want to attack the truth of the belief, here's an interesting thing about de facto objections, attacks of truth of beliefs. Um, to attack the truth of a belief, you actually don't have to appeal to any believer. So let's take the claim that the world is flat. Okay, um, I could attack that by trying to argue that the world is round and um, giving you know uh, astronomical evidence and even uh, photographic evidence and so forth. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't have to appeal to any believer. But to attack the rationality of a certain belief, you have to attack uh, some person's individual belief. Um, maybe to how they came to believe it. Maybe they used match eight ball, or um, I don't know. They were just being superstitious or something. Uh, so one more point I've been going on for a while is that you can attack the um, the rationality of a theistic belief without attacking the truth of a theistic belief by going like this. You could say. You know, I don't know whether or not there is a God, but your way of coming to belief in God, using a magic eight ball or just guessing or, or whatever, uh, that's not rational. So you can say, even regardless of whether it's true or false, um, that way of forming beliefs is not a rational way. And so uh, that's what this argument is doing. Notice that the evidentialist objection never says God doesn't exist. It just says the believer who's not believing on the basis of argument uh, their belief's not rational, whether or not God exists, or mm -hmm. whether or not it's true that God exists. That was a lot, I hope, for yeah. people. Yeah, I'll, I'll give this example. Uh, I think sure. the Magic 8 Ball is a great example. I've heard J.P. Moreland give this one, and I, it, it's always stuck with me. He said, you uh -huh. know, say, say a homeless guy 
goes into a public bathroom and you know there's always in public bathrooms on the stalls there's always stuff like etched into it uh, I guess people have too much time on their hands but anyway say this homeless guy goes in there and uh, he sees etched into that uh, uh, stall door uh, E equals MC squared and he says right. aha there you go I believe that E equals MC squared and if you right. said well what's your reason for believing that E equals MC squared. And he says, oh, I just believe everything etched on stall doors in public bathrooms. <laughs> right, you know, right, then you're right. going to say, look, even if it's true that E I does should... equal MC squared, even if that's true, your way of coming to that truth is terrible. Yeah. It's completely unreliable. Yeah. Uh, right. And so I like, I've always liked that example. Yeah. Yeah. One thing to add to this is um, for, because so, I know the, I've only been discovering this atheist YouTube world and this ap apologist YouTube world. And um, I just want to make distinguish because some people uh, really put, push these together. Um, you could still, like some atheists might still think that some believers, so you might be an atheist and think there's no God, but maybe some believers, given the situation they're in and the evidence they have, it is rational for them to believe in God. And flip, um, let's say you're a believer in a God. Um, there might be some atheists, given their evidence and their perspective and so forth, uh, even if there is a God, they might be rational and not believing in God. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I will chime in with this. My first super chat ever was just done <laughs> by Frank, oh, cool. by Frank uh, Christian. His, his, his super chat was $5, so I really appreciate that, Frank. Thank you. Oh, if, you if you've got a question tonight, Frank... You'll be first up to bat for sure. Um, so, all right, let's let's continue here. Um, uh, we we defined the difference between de jure and de facto, and the evidentialist objection is the is the de jure one that says that look, even if your belief is true, your way of getting to that belief is is not rational. Um, That's right, and because they had. No and so the evidentialist wants to say, in order for that belief to be rational, you need you need evidence for it, good evidence for it. That's yeah, the idea. That's um, yeah. And so now, what I want to ask is um, uh, just a few more terms in, that you use in the paper. Once we lay yeah. these out, I think I think the rest of the conversation will kind of fall in place. So we've defined de jure, we've defined de facto. Another yeah. term that that gets introduced is um, for a belief to be basic. So what does it mean yeah. for a belief to be basic? And then you also talk about beliefs that are properly basic. So define those. What's basic and what's yeah. proper about it? Uh, now that I hear the word basic, you know, like you basic, you know, like young <laughs> people. Okay, I'm so sorry. Okay, so um, yeah, so uh, this is the last part of my board. Um, the, uh, the idea is this. Um, now, um, the way this evidentialist objection is understanding evidence is just in terms of reasons or an argument, mm -hmm. specifically an argument. It's good to know what an argument is. Um, and, and it's common even in critical thinking or intro logic classes to say, look, if you're going to believe something, if you're going to hold a view, you got to support it with an argument. Now, um, but I think when people use that word argument, um, they're, they're using it rather loosely. So I want to try to make that more precise. An argument is something with premises and a conclusion. Okay, so premise one, P1, premise two, P2, and then a conclusion, C. So let's say I make the claim Sally is at the store. Mm -hmm. okay. Somebody might ask me, 
well, what's your justification for that claim? What's your argument or reason for believing that? And I might say, well, I know Fred's at the store, premise one. I know, I know that if Fred is at the store, then Sally's going to be at the store. Because lately, Fred and Sally have been spending a lot of time together. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how I can conclude that Sally's at the store. So the idea of an argument is that to rationally believe a conclu- um, conclusion uh, on the basis of an argument uh, is, I mean, I said that wrong, but to rationally believe a conclusion on the basis of an argument is to rationally believe the conclusion on the basis of the premises. Okay, mm-hmm. and typically, a lot of people want to say in these logic classes um, is, "Look, if you want to believe a claim, I want your justification for it. I want your premises. Tell me what that is." And then, what the evidentialist objector is doing is something like this. Um, so they have this argument here, and I say, "So a theist says, well, I believe that God exists. God exists, and they're wondering, all right." Tell me your reasons. What's your premise one and what's your premise two? Mm-hmm. And, and that's what the, the atheist is offer, often asking. Now, in the defending of reformed epistemology, the first part they're trying to say is, one, in general, we don't think and we should deny, this is the important part, we should deny that in order to rationally believe in something, you need a good argument for it on the, on the basis of which you believe that belief. And here's why. So let's say... Oh, by the way, while you're writing that, sorry to interrupt the flow. The the audience is just eating this whiteboard up. Everybody's like, bring back the whiteboard, bring it back. So they're loving it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thank you. Uh-huh. I'm so, why am I so touched by that? I, I don't understand. <laughs> okay, but, uh, um, okay, so let's say I believe some claim Z, and I believe it on the basis of my belief in X and Y. And I go, ha ha. I'm good. I can just finally believe Z and rationally believe on the basis of my belief in X and Y. But there is going to be another problem. In order to, I, it can't be just I randomly believe X and Y. I should rationally believe X and Y if I'm going to believe rationally believe Z as a result of X and Y. X and Y are just standing for more claims, right? right. So, so why should I believe X? Somebody might say, well. I should believe X because of A and B, right? Mm-hmm. I can rationally believe X because I rationally believe A and B. Next question. Well, how can you rationally believe A? Well, <laughs> A and then uh, I can rationally believe A on the basis of my belief in C and D. Now, clearly, if you can see, you can see what's happening, right? Um, this is what philosophers call an infinite regress. Right. Um, if you require, if you make this evidentialist requirement to rationally believe in something, you need to believe it on the basis of good argument. If you also have to rationally believe the premises, then you're going to be doing arguments forever, and nobody can do that. And it would turn out that nobody rationally believes anything, mm. and that's too much. Okay. So if you hold this claim like just too much, um, uh, uh, if you hold this evidentialist view, this argument view that to rationally believe in something, you need to have good argument for it, um, then you're going to end up not rationally believing in anything. Okay? What does this mean? Uh, it means that there are some beliefs, we'll call them the basic beliefs, okay, which are beliefs that we don't believe on the basis of argument. So a basic belief is not – I'm so sorry for the bad I, I can read it. Not based, based on an argument. Based on argument. And a non-basic belief 
also called an inferred belief. Okay, a non-basic uh, is obviously based on good argument. Okay, so basic beliefs uh, are not based on an argument. Non-basic are based on an argument. Yeah, but, but you asked the question, what's a properly basic belief? So, uh, I mean, there's some beliefs uh, that we'd hold on the base without an argument that are clearly irrational. Um, let's say for no reason at all, but my superstition, I believe that I'm going to win the lottery tomorrow. No argument for it. Uh, that's going to be uh, a non-rational basic belief mm -hmm. okay so you uh, don't believe that based on any argument you just say hey i just believe it but yeah, since there's right. uh um uh, since that's just not rational then you'd that's say it's that's yeah. not uh, a properly basic belief though it is basic that's, yeah so the properly basic belief roughly for now is just going to be the basic beliefs that are rational so um a clear example that everybody would agree is a properly basic belief is let's say I just like pinch myself like ah right mm -hmm. okay I just I believe that I'm in pain right now ah okay um, but I don't believe that on the basis of an argument right I don't need like premises and then form form of therefore I'm in pain like mm -hmm. uh, rather I just think about it and I go yeah I'm in pain uh, and so that would be a uh, everybody almost everybody should believe that's a properly basic belief mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, so the question before us then is going to be, uh, where does belief in God fall under, right? And now we can't say that all basic beliefs are irrational, that there are no properly basic beliefs. And it leaves open that maybe belief in God is one of those properly basic beliefs, uh, something we just know, even without uh, being based on a good argument. Very good. Okay, so um, we've defined de jure, de facto, basic, and properly basic. And all those yep. terms, I think, are, are good to kind of lay out up front uh, because we're going to start using them for the rest of the conversation. Um, so uh, now, you say that belief, that a belief can be properly basic with yeah. respect to some, some epistemic property. So you may want to say, what do we mean by an epistemic property? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then there's a few different ones that you, a few different properties you mentioned. You mentioned justification, rationality, yeah. and warrant. Um, yeah. So just kind of lay that out that you say, okay, well, here's an example of a belief that is properly basic with respect yeah. to uh, justification. And once Good. we've laid out the terms, so lay those out for us. Yeah. All right. So uh, you mentioned. And I'm not going to, well, actually, no, I will write these down because I think it's worth it. Um, so justification, rationality, and then warrant. Now, the first thing I'm going to say about these, so we got our properly basic belief, and then we got justification, rationality, and warrant. Now, all three of these terms are used in a number of different ways throughout professional epistemology and throughout philosophy. So um, I've just been using the word rational because it's an ordinary English word. Um, it's not like jargon or anything like that. So um, yeah, so I'm gonna just take uh, some of Plantinga's definitions of these terms. Yeah. Okay, so roughly for Plantinga to be justified in a belief, um, and again, this isn't the only way of using this term in epistemology. It, it, it's to say you are blameless Mm. Blameless. And coming to yeah, like you did your best 
just try, you tried your best, you followed um, the evidence or your reasoning as best as you could. And then at the end of the day, you just like, this is what seems right to me. And you just believe it. Mm-hmm. And it's not like ignoring things or whatever, but you took, you did your best to think about everything and you're like, yeah, this is what seems right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So to be properly, have a properly basic belief with respect to justification is to say, um, you've done your best. Um, and you believe, but not on the basis of an argument, and that's what your belief is, and that's what it would be to have a properly based belief with respect to justification, which is really just about blamelessness. And planning is going to say, well, on that requirement, a lot of theists meet that requirement. So a lot of theists have done their best, they've thought through it, they've reasoned through things, and at the end of the day, they just find themselves, it, it just se- seems right at the end of the day to think, oh yeah, there's got to be a God, there's got to mm-hmm. be a higher power. And so for them, their uh, beliefs would be properly basic with respect to blamelessness or justification. Yeah. Now, there's also properly basic beliefs with respect to rationality. Now, planning a, what planning a talks about rationality, um, he's thinking of uh, proper function rationality, meaning when you form the belief, it's not the result of disorder or disease. Uh, so imagine somebody with Capgras syndrome. Capgras syndrome, it's a its a horrible um, psychological condition where you actually think some of your friends or loved ones have been replaced by imposters. Um, so as a result of this disease, you might believe that your wife is actually an alien or mm-hmm. somebody else, or just not the actual person. Okay. Now, um, now, such beliefs are not proper function rational, okay? But notice they could be uh, justified in the blamelessness sense. So let's say no matter how hard you try, you just can't help but believe that your wife is an imposter. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't hold you to be blameworthy. We wouldn't fault you because that's how things seem to you. That's how your disease has led you to believe. So you might be blameless in your belief, but we would still say there's something irrational or messed up about mm-hmm. your belief. And that's what planning is going to call um, proper function irrational mm-hmm. in this case. And then planning this question there is, well, I mean, are theists, do they have a disease or a disorder? I mean, that, that seems a bit much. Now, maybe some atheists are willing to go that far, but mm-hmm. I'm planning of things, look, these are healthy, mentally healthy individuals that are believing in God. So we, we don't want to say that their their basic beliefs in God are proper function irrational. Yeah. So I'm just going to say about that. Yeah. And then that um, last one, warrant. Yeah, warrant. So um, warrant is, plan- okay, um, now, in this way, planning is way planning is going to use the word. Um, it's very related to the word knowledge. So, knowledge. So, the idea about warrant or knowledge is this: um, there are some things we believe, but the things we believe aren't. We don't really know them. So, let's take a case where. Um, let's actually let's use a case of um, somebody with an irrational belief where um, I'm at a restaurant, it's before the quarantine, and uh, the, the guy over there, I just, uh, let's say because of my uh, my paranoia, my schizophrenia or something, um, I don't actually have it, but let's say I did. Let's say I believe that that guy over there was a murderer, mm-hmm. okay? Solely because of my disease. Um, let's say it's true that he's a murderer, okay? But would we say that I know that he's a murderer? Um, I, did, I didn't know that he was a murderer, right? Even though I got the truth, right? I got a true belief, but I didn't I didn't know. I didn't have knowledge. So what planning is going to say is my belief that he's a murderer, it lacks warrant. Where warrant is defined as what makes the difference between knowledge and true belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So there's the, tr- the beliefs that I have that happen to be right and the things that I know to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, things I know to be true are the true beliefs that also have warrant. Yeah. Perfect. Yep. Let me bring myself back in here. I've had it to where it's just everybody can just focus on you and the whiteboard. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so now planning his theory, you say, uh, at least his theory of warrant is yep. uh, what you call a proper functionalist theory. Yeah, that's true. Right. Uh, and so I think in the paper you lay out some uh, conditions that he has in mind when he says uh, properly functioning or, or it's proper functionalist. Um, can you, you know, summarize those kind of conditions that need to be met for it uh, on a proper functionalist theory? Yeah. Well, one thing I want to note is um, there are actually a number of theories of knowledge or warrant. Um, proper functionalism is one of them. Uh, there's plenty of others. And I think, well, okay. I need to stay focused. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, I'll answer your question. What is a proper functionalist theory of knowledge? Um, it goes like this. So we were asking, there are some true beliefs that uh, are not knowledge and some things that are knowledge. So I know that I'm talking with Jordan. How do? What does it mean to say that I know that? It's, it's a true belief. I have the true belief that I'm speaking to Jordan. Um, and I also know it. So what do I have here? that I don't have in the other case where I'm um, schizophrenic. So that's where planning answers with this proper function condition. Uh, planning cares a lot about proper function. It's also a view uh, of knowledge that I've defended in, in other places too. So for planning, a, for a true belief to have warrant is for your belief to be formed by properly functioning cognitive mechanisms in the right sort of environment for the functioning of those faculties um, according to a truth-aimed design plan, a reliable truth-aimed design plan. Now, uh, fleshing that out would actually maybe take a little more time than we want to use on it, but I'll just say this. Um, for me to know that there's a marker here, uh, here's planning as conditions. My eyes, my visual cognitive faculties have to be properly functioning. Okay, I have to be in the right sort of environment for the functioning of those faculties. What's that? Proper lighting conditions. Okay, so uh, if I were in the dark or in a room full of mirrors, that wouldn't be the proper environment for the function of my cognitive faculties, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. the function of my visual faculties must be aimed at giving me a true belief. Uh, and, and they are, right? Uh, my faculties have been designed to give me true beliefs about uh, whether there's a marker here. Um, and if they're designed well, then I'm planning as view. That's what makes the difference between true beliefs that aren't knowledge and true beliefs that are knowledge. When the beliefs formed by properly functioning cognitive faculties in the right sort of cognitive environment, according to a truth aim design plan. That, that's his theory. Yeah, that's that's good enough for uh, for now. I know we could tease all sure. the, the all, each element apart, but for now, that's that's good enough. So, uh, good. Uh, Planning does not claim that theistic belief is in fact warranted. Um, yeah. He rather he just makes a conditional claim. So he doesn't. Yeah. We're looking at the if somebody has the belief that God exists, and we're trying to figure yeah. out. All right, is is that belief properly basic uh, yeah. with respect to uh, each each of those terms you mentioned? With respect to justification, yeah. with respect to rationality, particularly we're interested in warrant. Is is the belief that God exists properly basic with respect to warrant? And yeah. planning a set, he doesn't say, yes, it is. Uh, rather, he says, 
it would be warranted if God exists, right? right. Uh, um, yeah. And so he actually has an argument for that conclusion, and uh, I can put it up on the screen now if you think that's a good time yeah. or if you want. Okay, yeah. okay so here's, here's planning his argument for why he thinks that belief in God would be warranted if God does in fact exist. Uh, yeah. And you've got the premises in front of you, so if you want to read them and, and uh, explain each step, you can. Yeah, I actually can't see it right now. Oh, okay, uh, then I'll, I'll read each step and you can just stop me if you want. Okay? Sure, yeah. So, uh, premise number one. If God exists, then God loves us and desires for us to know about him. Premise two. If God loves us and desires for us to know about him, then God probably intended for us to know about him. So if God desires that, then he probably intended for that kind of thing to happen. Premise three, if God probably intended for us to know about him, then God probably created us in such a way that we would come to hold certain true beliefs about him, like that he exists and loves us and so on. So premise four, if God probably created us in such a way that we would come to hold certain true beliefs about him, then belief in God is probably produced by cognitive faculties that are functioning properly according to a reliable truth-aimed design plan. And so five, the conclusion is, if God exists, then belief in God is probably warranted. Yeah. So that's that's the argument. Now, what I want to spend a little time doing is if you if you want to expand on any any part of that argument, we can. But I, I basically, in the rest of your paper, you talk about some objections to the premises in this argument. And that's where I want to spend uh, the remainder of the time. Okay. Um, right. I, th I think what's important here is um, a, a number of people will, might complain, well, I want to know whether belief in God is warranted, not whether it's warranted if God exists. And that, that seems a little weak, doesn't it, Planning? Uh, they might say. Um and uh, here's where I think it's worth pointing out what Plantinga has achieved with this argument, if it's a good argument. I, uh, well, okay, so uh, let's say somebody says this. Here's the old Freud-Marx objection. Um, Freud might say belief in God is just a result of wishful thinking or just wanting to have a father figure. So we just end up believing in God because it's produced by this wishful thinking cognitive mechanism. Or Marx might have said belief in religion or a god is some sort of disease. It's a result of um, you know growing up in a bad society or something like that. Now, um, here's what Planning wants to say, and here's the value of his conditional claim. The conditional conclusion, if God exists and belief in God is probably warranted, which is this. The, the, the Freud or Marx objection is saying, look, your belief in God is just formed by wishful thinking or an unreliable process or some, some sort of disorder. And planning can be like, whoa, 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 hold up. That's only right if God doesn't exist. Because if God does exist, if you look at this argument, I don't know where it is, which side I mean it is. It's not on look, the screen right now. but Oh, it's not? Okay. Uh, but uh, if you look at my argument, you'll see – because if God does exist, then God is the designer of human beings. And so God is the one who made our cognitive faculties such that that it's reasonable to think that when I come to form beliefs about God, it's part of God's intention and hence mm -hmm. part of God's design plan and hence part of proper function and truth aim design plan. So Freud or Marx, when you say my belief in God is the result of 
this wishful thinking or unreliable process, to make your argument work, you have to assume that God doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. That's the main point. Because if God does exist, then we should think that God is the one who made our cognitive, our cognitive mechanisms. And then so we shouldn't think of belief in God in this as being formed by this unreliable process. If God doesn't exist, that's right. My belief, uh, my brain wasn't wired by God. And so if God doesn't exist, um, who knows what mechanisms are producing that basic belief in God. Um, but so, but the the kind of the punchline planning it has for the Freud Marx objector is: look there, um, for your argument to work, you got to assume that God doesn't exist. So, in order for me to be convinced by your argument, uh, I want to see your argument that God doesn't exist first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of them have that. So, uh, and that leads to the, uh, the 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 next part. So, yeah. if planning his argument is successful, then people then need to provide some kind of defeater for a theistic belief. Some reason to think it that that the belief itself is false, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. If, if Yeah, there are different types of defeaters, but yeah, maybe the sort of defeater that would show that theistic belief is false. Mm-hmm. That's what Plankton is arguing, right? And, and there are possible ways to do that. You might say there's too much evil in the world, so therefore there's no God or... Uh, I mean, there's classic atheistic arguments that they could try. Um, but the point is, you can't make the Freud-Marx objection or objections like that without using um, some other independent argument that God doesn't exist. Gotcha. Um, so for the person that's making the objection yeah. to theistic belief, if they're raising yeah. a de jure objection, the, the right. kind that says... Uh, your belief is irrational, then yeah. uh, like like Freud and, and Marx, you mentioned, those kinds of objections. If they raise a de jure objection, uh, then on Planning's view, that yeah. objection alone is not going to be sufficient. They need to That's actually right. have an argument against uh, God, not just an argument against belief in God. That's I'm right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think one of planning as main insights here is that the de jure question, the question of the rationality or warrant of belief in God, depends on the de facto objection, the question of whether or not God exists or whether it's true that God exists. Uh, you can't make one objection without making the other objection first. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's right. Um, a little more, so in contemporary analytic philosophy, not many people use the Freud Marx objection anymore. It's kind of an outdated old thing. Um, a little bit more hip and cool and popular are what people call the debunking arguments or evolutionary debunking arguments or arguments from empirical psychology, evolutionary psychology, common science religion. Um, they're all trying to find like certain sort of evolutionary stories that tell the story of how our minds were wired so that we would form religious beliefs. Um, actually, if you look around the world, I mean, it's hard to find cultures that just aren't forming religious beliefs many of which are also forming belief in God and theistic beliefs. Okay, so it really looks like our minds have been wired to uh, form beliefs about God or religion and so forth. Okay, now, if you're an atheist, here's how you're going to look at it. The atheist is going to say, ha, 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 look at how we've explained away belief in God and um, we've found these evolutionary mechanisms that produce theistic belief. But that's not at all how the theist is going to look at it. The theist is going to say, Wow, isn't it cool that 
God designed our minds and our brains so that we will be able to come to have true beliefs about God. The theist is going to look at things completely different. So um, if you assume atheism, if atheism is true, then they're probably right. Belief in God is produced by some unreliable cognitive mechanism. Um, supposing the argument is not, so supposing belief in God isn't produced by an argument, we're assuming. Um, but if God does exist, then these theistic beliefs that, that we've been wired to form, uh, form and have, well, then it's the sort of thing that you would think God probably was behind that. So we should say they're actually rational. All right. So this kind of brings us to maybe like the halfway point of our conversation because all we've done up to this point, I know that uh, somebody, uh, Anthony Rowden, just joined us. So all we've really done up to this point is laid out some of the terms that uh, Alvin Plantinga uses in his arguments uh, for Reformed epistemology. And then we actually laid out his argument uh, for it and just kind of explained the uh, implications of that argument, if it's, if it's a good one. Now, before we move to the second half where we look at objections to uh, Reformed epistemology... Um, yeah. uh, I, Slam RN, uh, who is on my channel pretty frequently, uh, and is okay. and is sharp, said um, that she she didn't quite follow, uh, or, or uh, it was premise two, three, and four. She found uh -huh. to be confusing. So, okay, uh, I don't know if she, when she says they're confusing, if she has in mind objections or if she means okay. they they don't make sense. Uh, so just in okay. case, uh. She thinks, you know, I'm not actually understanding what the premise is saying. Not necessarily I have an objection to it. Uh, I'll review really quick. I've got the, the argument up on my screen. So all we're saying is, you know, if God wants us to know about him, then he intends for us to know about him. If he loves us and, and wants us to know about him, then his intention is going to be uh, to make sure that we that we know about him. And then you ask, well, how's he going to achieve that? You know, if that's what he wants, how's he going to do that? Well, he's probably going to make sure we have uh, cognitive faculties that are aimed at uh, producing the belief that he exists and loves us and so on. That's that's kind of premise three. And so then premise four is saying, um, you know, if that's the case, if, if he did give us these cognitive faculties that are aimed at producing a belief in him and that he loves us and so on. Um, then, oh, well, shoot. I don't know why my, <laughs> uh, screen went down. I'm sorry. It paused mid argument. Uh, I mean, well, you can, oh, okay. Uh, it, something happened like on a technical end. I don't know. Okay. It like disappeared for some reason. I'll see if I can add it back. Uh, but anyway, the, once you, once you, uh, have those premises in place, then it just kind of naturally follows the the conclusion just kind of naturally follows of, uh, well, if God exists, then my cognitive faculties are properly functioning. And so when they produce this belief, then that gives me warrant that that's the idea. I think, am I right about that's, that? That's the gist. Yeah. Um, so what I would wonder from, um, the, that listener, I forget her name, um, is maybe which premise was unclear to her. Um, Mm -hmm. And or and it, it might be I suspect she might just have an objection. She might think, oh, I'm not convinced by premise two or premise three or something. So I'm curious. Yeah, I, it, it may very well just be that. 
So let's go ahead and turn to, to objections then, okay? So um, now that we've got this argument out, uh, in the paper you do this, you, you say, you know, here's some people that object to premise two, and here's some people that object to premise three, and so on. So let's start with the skeptical theists, okay? In yes. the paper you say skeptical theists are going to object, uh, I guess at minimum, they could object to more than this, but at minimum they're, they're going to want to object, object to premise two. But first, let's describe what is skeptical theism first, and then we'll look at their objection. Yeah. So in the literature, um, so skeptical theism, broadly, it's a way, it's a view that's used to respond to the problem of evil. The problem of evil is supposed to be an argument. Okay, so there's many problems of evil, many arguments from evil, and there's a few versions of skeptical theism. So I'll just be kind of loosey-goosey here. Um uh, suppose somebody tries to argue against God's existence like this. They say, look, we look around in the world and see all these evils, and no matter how hard we think about it, we can't think of any reasons for why God would allow them. Maybe some of the evils we can see why God would allow them, but uh, a lot we can't see it. Um, and so that makes it reasonable to believe that there probably are no reasons for why God would allow those evils. But if that's the case, then we should think that there probably is no God. So, so the line of reasoning, what, like, I can't think of a reason why God would allow certain evils, so there probably are no reasons for why God would allow those evils, and that just it follows, therefore, that probably there is no God. So that's one version of the argument from evil. There's many more, but that's kind of the uh, more straight, most straightforward one. And the skeptical theist says, the skeptical theist is going to deny the inference from I can't think of a reason for why God would allow certain evils to, there probably are no reasons for why God allows certain evils. And um, here's how the, here's why. Um, when we go, I can't think of why God would allow evils, therefore there probably are none. That's kind of assuming that you have some insight into what God's reasons are, right? That we kind of know. And, and, the, and the thing is, I mean, God probably knows more than us, right? God knows quite a bit. And there's a lot about the world and the, um, the total set of goods and evils and reasons might, God might have for doing things. And so the skeptical theist basically is denying that inference. Um, because we don't know much about the reasons God has to allow certain evils, it follows that we can't make the jump from saying, since I can't think of a good reason for why God would allow evil, therefore probably there are no good reasons for why God would allow evil. Um, that might have been better with the board, but um, a little more. <laughs> I'm sure John DeRosa wants the board to come back. Uh, so, <laughs> um, okay, yeah, so the skeptical theist, in responding to the, the problem of evil, is going to say, uh, we're not really in a position to, to know what God's reasons would be for allowing this, so you can't make that, that inference that because I can't think of a good reason, uh, there isn't one. That's, that's where they want to, to kind of come in. So then they apply that same kind of thinking of, I, I can't know what God wants. I can't know what he intends. I can't know what he desires most. Uh, I'm just not in a position to know that thing. And then they apply it to planning his argument, uh, specifically premise two. I'll pull, I'll pull premise two up here. So premise two says, if God loves and desires for us to know about him, then God probably intended for us to know about him. So they want to say, well, even if that's true that he loves and desires us, maybe he's got some overriding reason to where, you know, that's not his intention. Am I am I on to the right idea there? That's right. There are things that we want 
but that we don't choose to bring about or intend to bring about. Um, there, there was this cookie I really wanted, but I chose, I didn't intend to eat it. I didn't choose to eat it. And the reason is because I had these other desires. I desire to try to be healthy and live a healthy lifestyle. So um, I think actually premise one, is the argument still on the screen? Yeah, um, I can put it back up right now. So it's on yeah. there now. Yeah, so I, I'm actually fine with premise one. If God exists, then God would want us to know about him. I think that's pretty clear. Um, and But it's harder to say, even if God wants us to know about him, that God would intend for that to be the case. And that's because there might be other things God wants and other reasons God might have to not intend to bring it about. In the case of me with the cookie, I had other um, considerations that would keep me from actually intending to bring about uh, me eating the cookie. Mm -hmm. um, now, I think that's the same with the problem of evil. I think if there's a bit of horrific evil or suffering, I think God doesn't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. Okay, I don't think we can say that God, all things considered, doesn't want that to happen because we don't know what are the other things God wants. There might be greater goods that are beyond our human ken, mm -hmm. so that we can't know what those greater goods might be that God wants to bring about, or there might be worse evil evils that we don't know God is resisting from bringing about. So um, so I think because of that, uh, we should be resistant uh, premise two, or at least that's what the skeptical theist objection is saying. Gotcha. Okay, so that's, the, that's their objection. Uh, you sound very sympathetic to it. So, uh, but but yeah. if I'm not mistaken, you are a reformed epistemologist. So that's right. what that tells me is either you have other reasons besides this argument for holding yeah. to reformed epistemology, or you think that yeah. somehow the skeptical theist, uh, that that version of a skeptical theist objection doesn't work on the, against this premise. So so which is it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, that puts me in a tight spot. So I I actually for about two or three years tried to get planning this argument to work, and I like planning as work and stuff and. I tried really hard, but at the end of the day, I, I gave up. I couldn't get premise two to work because I, I actually do like skeptical theism quite a bit. Um, there, um, so I actually wrote a paper trying to defend premise two. Um, I failed. So the thesis of my that paper changed from arguing for premise two to arguing against it. Mm -hmm. uh, so at the end of the day, um, I don't accept this version of reformed the uh, epistemology, and I don't accept the premise two. Okay, but then you ask, well, then how can I still be a reformed epistemologist? Um, well, there's two ways, um, actually three ways. Um, number one, we talked about how there's different valuable epistemic properties like justification or rationality or um, other things. So I might think that theistic belief or religious belief is properly basic with respect to those properties, but maybe not with respect to warrant mm -hmm. uh, or knowledge. So that's number one. Uh, Number two, this is something that Tyler McNabb, a friend of mine who also works on reformed epistemology, uh, he's, he's convinced me of this, which is that um, for this argument to do the work of blocking the debunking arguments or the Freud-Marx objection, it doesn't have to be that if God exists, then very probably or surely results that my belief in God is uh, formed by properly functioning faculties. It just has to be like maybe the skeptical theist is right. And then all we can say is, if God exists, then 
there's some probability, it's not zero, but for all we know, our belief in God is produced by properly functioning faculties. Um, skeptical theism leaves that open. So we can say maybe God had other reasons, or maybe God didn't have other reasons, but uh, for all we know, God did do, God did produce our uh, um, theistic beliefs by way of properly functioning faculties. If that's right, then uh, Tyler convinced me, that's enough to block the, the jury objections because you could still say, you know, if there is a God, then it very well could be that my belief in God is produced by properly functioning cognitive faculties. So because of that, um, um, I mean, the your debunking argument or your Freud Marx objection is not sufficient yet, um, because God still might have uh, God still might have uh, formed my cognitive faculties in this way. Uh, there's a there's a third response. Um, the thing is. Uh, it's pretty complex, mm. and it's part of what you might interview me about in another video. I think I will interview you about it. Uh, yeah, so yeah. so those that are watching, uh, uh, Andrew just shared a few days ago with me a paper that uh, I think was pretty recently published, or, or is it going to be? Or? It was just accepted, and it hasn't even been published yet. Uh, okay, so. yes, yes. So this is cutting-edge stuff. And uh, once he explained the idea to me, I was like, oh, yeah, this sounds like something I want to... Uh, interview him on. So I'm planning to have him back to discuss that paper. So we can just yeah, put so, that third point on hold if you want. And sure. that, that'd be fine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. If somebody wants to push on it in the Q&A though, I can still give a little bit of sure. it. But okay. Yeah. Why don't we move on for now? Yeah. Okay. So that, that kind of uh, ans helps to respond to the skeptical theist objection. You're saying, Hey, I'm really sympathetic to that actually. And uh, but I've got some some reasons for still thinking that um, reformed epistemology stands, uh, but maybe not necessarily this argument for reformed epistemology. Is is That's that right. is yeah. that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then, um, uh, <laughs> almost at this point, it's like, well, what's what's the rest of the argument worth examining for? But we can still have fun with it. Um, yeah. So, well, oh, maybe there's some smart person out in the audience right now who will think of a successful defense or premise too, and and so I, I wish you well in that. And I tried and failed, but maybe you can try try and succeed where Andrew Moon failed. <laughs> okay, so uh, just for the you know the sake of of closely examining it, uh, let's look at premise three. So there's some attacks on premise three, and I and I think we can still learn from the objections yeah. to it. Uh, regardless of if the argument as a whole works. So um, you describe in the paper uh, that there's um, data from the, cog from, from the cognitive science of religion that, uh, that is sometimes used to uh, attack premise three. So first of all, what's cognitive science of religion, that, that field? And then what is it that they're, what data are they using to try and uh, form an objection to premise three? Yeah. So to understand what cognitive science religion is, you should understand what cognitive science is. To understand what cognitive science is, well, it's actually a hodgepodge. It's a very interdisciplinary uh, uh, field, I guess, that incorporates uh, developmental psychology, computer science, philosophy, linguistics. So um, when you think of cognitive science, you're going to just think of like all the sciences used to study the mind, basically. And so now cognitive science of religion then is just going to be using 
cognitive science, all these interdisciplinary methods from all these different sciences to study religious belief, religious, and not just religious belief, also religious practice, uh, religious other uh, other things religious. So that's cognitive science of religion. Now, um, now there's uh, a, a way I described earlier that. Uh, Reformed epistemology is relevant to cognitive science religion as the people who might try to give debunking arguments. Uh, we talked about that. Um, now I can mention this. Planning a specific model of reformed epistemology goes that he gives a specific story. Okay, so premise three says, if God intended for us to form true beliefs about God, then God would have created us in such a way to form beliefs about God. What is that way? For this, planning a draws from John Calvin. Calvin had this idea, uh, what he called um, the census divinitatis. Actually, that one's worth writing down. So I'm going to put that on the board. I had a feeling you were going to write that, so I went ahead and just made you full screen. Census divinitatis. Uh, Okay. Census divinitatis. Mm -hmm. Um. It's Latin, so it sounds cool and better. <laughs> and uh, so, Cal, um, and the census divinitatis literally is going to be a sense of the divine. Um, now, there, there's actually some question whether um, planning is properly interpreting Calvin on this, but we can put those things aside. I actually was convinced that he might not be, but well, regardless, planning <laughs> um, what census divinitatis is is a certain sort of cognitive mechanism that's designed to be able to form true beliefs about God. So here's how it works. Um, my eyes are designed to form true beliefs about my physical environment. My, uh, my uh, memory is designed to help me form beliefs about the past or retain information from the past. Um, and, and so as you can tell, like different cognitive mechanisms, I might have um, little mechanisms within my visual faculties that actually help me form color vision, beliefs about colors. Okay, so we have different mechanisms within our brain that are specialized at forming beliefs about different topics. And planning has suggested maybe we have something like a religion faculty, the census of Inetatis, that's designed to form true beliefs about God or the divine or supernatural things. And that's what the census of Inetatis is. So planning wants to say, if God intended for us to know or form true beliefs about God, then God would have created us with something like a census divinitatis mm-hmm. um, so that we can form beliefs about God. And, um, yeah. And, yeah, so that, that, that's the gist. Um, that I'll, I'll mention something that SlamRN yeah. brought up in the chat. I think she was, uh, and it's related to this term, census divinitatis, that originates with uh, John Calvin. So uh, where we're planning a uses that term census divinitatis he's drawing from john calvin that's where we get the name reformed epistemology yeah, right that's right uh so slam rn in the chat earlier uh i think liz helped uh, and john DeRosa helped explain the relationship she was concerned like oh is this is this an epistemology only for calvinists or something like that oh, uh yeah. and so it's more when we say reformed epistemology it's more uh a historical kind of claim, right? Like uh, this important element of, of this imp- epistemology called the census divinitatis originates with John Calvin. So we're going to give him credit for uh, that idea. Yeah. Is that is that kind of how it goes? Or why yeah. do we call it reformed epistemology? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think 
uh, early on in the 80s, planning was driving, drawing more from Kelvin, and he caught a reformed epistemology then. Um, there was actually a backlash from some Catholic philosophers who wrote a set of essays in response to uh, Plantinga. Uh, and it turns out, though, that the sort of um, way of coming to know about God that Plantinga defends, uh, which he drew from Calvin, also can be uh, drawn from Aquinas. And uh, Aquinas, as many people know, um, is endeared and loved by uh, Catholics and Catholic many Catholic philosophers, at least. So um, in Plantinga's later work, Plantinga was always careful to call his theory or model, the Aquinas-Calvin model, because then it kind of unites Catholics and mm -hmm. like the AC. And the, sometimes you see like A slash C for uh, Aquinas-Calvin. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I would say uh, it's a little bit more ecumenical. Uh, it's going to take some from Reformed theologians, but it's also going to take some from the Catholic tradition. And in fact, I think you, I think you see this in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, like um, if you look at most of the believers in the Bible, they just directly believe in God by way of forming, just having experiences of God. Um, I think the disciples didn't believe in God on the basis of an argument. Um, I don't think Jesus believed in God on the basis of an argument. Uh, so I, uh, I mean, maybe they also had arguments, but for a lot of them, um, they just had direct experiences of God. Um, so uh, the nice thing about Reformed epistemology is you can see it coming right out of the Bible, uh, but you can also see it from coming from the Catholic and the and the Reformed tradition. Uh, yeah, very good. I'm gonna turn on light to. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, so we were you you mentioned cognitive science and religion uh that you know they're going to study uh maybe certain cognitive faculties we have that produce beliefs and so this would naturally yep. connect uh and so planning has suggested hey maybe we have this faculty and i'm going to call it the census divinitatis and that's yep. that's the faculty that produces true belief about god yep. true beliefs about god so um now the cognitive sciences uh, sometimes are used to try and, and object to this third premise, and I'll put it back up. So the third premise says, uh, if God probably intended for us to know about him, then God probably designed us in such a way that we would come to hold certain true beliefs about him, like he exists and loves us. So uh, what what are they pulling on? What data are they pulling on to try and make an objection to that? Yeah, so uh, for, yeah, one, for example, one epistemologist, uh, Jack Lyons, Who's pretty? Who knows the cognitive science pretty well, and and some others have just pointed out, um, like there's a lot of empirical investigation into our brains, and there's some good reason to think there are um, there are certain modules, faculties. We have uh, modules for like edge detection, for detecting color, and so forth. Um, that we have, um, we row roughly where you know how our memory works and so forth, um, and so some people will say. But we don't have any evidence for this census divinitatis or like a God module or a God faculty. So the, the argument's a little bit more just like from a lack of evidence. Like we don't see anything like that in the brain. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now, uh, I, I find that moving. I don't find it completely moving just because, one, there's a lot we don't know about the brain. And there's a lot we don't know about cognitive science. Um, if, uh, when I was at Rutgers, uh, uh, they have a powerful common science program and I would talk with people there. Um, 
um, as far as I can tell, though, there's still a lot we don't know. And um, so I think it still leaves it open whether there is such a thing as sensitive initatus, although I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit skeptical as well. Uh, one thing about modules is like, it's not like a module of a brain. It's going to be like, it's right there. There's the God detector. Like, I mean, some modules are spe specifically lo like they're, they're localized, but some aren't. Some things, like some parts of our memory, they're just spread throughout the brain. So you can't really find a specific place where they are. So I think it's a hard question. And to some extent, um, there's a lot I don't know. Uh, so, and I just have to admit to that. Um, yeah. So, well, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. So uh, I know that, well, I can ask you, like, how do, how do we respond to this objection then if, if, the co if, if some cognitive scientist of religion yeah. comes along and says, hey, this census divinitatis, uh, it doesn't exist. I, I don't see it anywhere in the brain. Um, if they make that kind of objection, then how do you respond? Right, yeah. So the first thing I do, I respond is say, is to say this, and this is something uh, actually in their um, William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, in their um, their massive uh, Philosophical Foundations of a Christian Worldview book, uh, they point this out about planning, which is his Reformed epistemology doesn't actually require for there to be a census divinitatis. Like when after I reconstructed his argument, which you put up, and I was surprised nobody, as far as I could tell, no, as far as I knew, nobody in the literature had done it. And I was surprised to see that his actual argument for reformed epistemology never actually appeals to a sense of divinitatis. It just says God would have created us in such a way to be able to form true beliefs about him. Mm -hmm. Now, for that, you don't need a specialized module or cognitive faculty. For example, um, I think that our sensory mechanisms have been designed so that we can form true beliefs about food. Mm -hmm. um, that's pretty clear. We can smell it. We can taste it. We can see it. We'll even feel attraction toward it. Okay, we'll want to eat it. Okay, but there's no like food module um, in the brain. It's where we just have a bunch of um, a bunch of sensory modalities that help us form beliefs about food, mm -hmm. and then we desire to eat it. And so it could just be that we just have a bunch of mechanisms, which even if there is no specialized sense of divinitatis, there might be a bunch of mechanisms which, when working together, uh, will help us form true beliefs about God. And we do have that. So we do have mechanisms designed to form beliefs about there being agents in the world, um, know that there are other minds. Um, we can form beliefs that some people are intending certain things. We attribute mental states into the world. Um, and uh, we also form beliefs about uh, purposes. So when we look at a scene, we can kind of see like, oh, was this by accident or was something intended, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, and with that, that helps us form beliefs about things in the world having purpose and meaning and value. Yep. And so all these things coming together, um, I think, would help us form true beliefs about God in the same way that we might have a bunch of uh, cognitive mechanisms helping us form true beliefs about food. Um, yeah. So it doesn't really matter if there's not this single faculty called sensus divinitatis that only recognizes and forms belief about God. Rather, it could be a combination of our other cognitive faculties that helps form yeah. Uh, beliefs about God, like our agency detecting device and theory of mind faculty and so on, uh, that yep. uh, that produce this this belief in God. Okay. Uh, yep. So then, this brings us to our third and final objection. So we looked at the skeptical theist objection, uh, which to a, to a degree you say 
yeah, that works on this argument. May not work on argument an argument against a better. Well, let me say this: may not work on uh, a better argument for reformed epistemology. Uh, yeah. We can we can weaken our premise to where the skeptical the- theist objection doesn't matter anymore. Um, something like that. Uh, but that's one objection. Did you want to correct me on that? Well, um, I just want to add, so I did write a separate paper just devoted to that topic. Um, maybe we can link it, uh, after the, the yeah, show. Yeah, if you'll email it to me, I'll put it in the description. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cause I actually, I write a little more clearly, I think, what are the options for the reformed epistemology in that, in that paper, but it's not as developed as my most recent paper that just got accepted. Okay. Yeah, just email that to me, and uh, and I'll put it in the description of the video. So then, uh, that was the first objection, the, the skeptical theist objection. The second one was the cognitive science of religion objection. And yeah. then the, the third one that I wanted to focus on was the great pumpkin objection. So this will be uh-huh. the last one, because we're, we're coming up, we're, yeah. Let's, let's take maybe five, six minutes, if possible, yeah. to... D- describe you know what is that objection and then how we respond and then i want to start yeah. taking people's questions okay so um the great pumpkin objection of all these objections i think this is the most of a non-objection as in like uh i think it might have been a valuable objection uh maybe 30 years ago uh but not so much now and here's why Initially, when planning a uh, proposed that belief in God could be properly basic, rational, even though not supported by an argument, um, people said, well, okay, it's true. There are basic beliefs that are rational, like the belief that I'm in pain. But, I mean, if you're going to let God in, belief in God as a rational basic belief, properly basic belief, then you might as well let all sorts of crazy beliefs in, like Linus's belief in the great pumpkin. You know, um, might, as well say, might as well say that's also a rational basic belief. Um, and so it's kind of like re- trying to present, um, like to show that reform epistemology has these implications that are nuts or crazy. If you say belief in God can be properly basic, then you can say Linus's belief in the great pumpkin, uh, um, is properly basic for those of you who know, Charlie Brown, that's what Linus believes in a great pumpkin. That's going to do nice things for him on a Halloween. I forget what the great pumpkin does, but anyway, um, and then, but clearly, it's not rational for Linus to believe in the Great Pumpkin. Therefore, we shouldn't think that belief in God can be properly basic. Okay, so um, here's why I think that objection's a little outdated. It might have applied 30 years ago when Plantinga didn't have a theory of warrant or justification supporting his view about reformed epistemology. So if, if Plantinga just said, oh, belief in God is probably basic, What's to stop belief in the great pumpkin from being properly basic? Who knows, okay? But if planning and now develops a theory of warrant or knowledge, where to have warrant or knowledge, your belief must be produced by probably functioning faculties according to design, truth and design plan. Now, planning is going to argue that belief in God might be produced by such, um, by probably functioning cognitive faculties, truth and environment. So it would meet these conditions or warrant. Okay. Now the great pumpkin objector can't just say, well, why can't a belief in the great pumpkin also be uh, formed in that way? Now they have to give an argument that what applies to belief in God applies to the great pumpkin. And you don't really have that with the great pumpkin. Uh, you do have that with planning as argument that belief in God would be. Um, so um, taking a step back, actually, 
uh, here's my recipe for how you're going to attack reformed, how one should attack reformed epistemology. Nowadays, reformed epistemology is, I, I think of that as applied epistemology, so uh, where you're applying general epistemology to specific questions about religious belief. But there's what I call normative epistemology, or just like your background theoretical epistemology, where you form theories of justification or warrant or knowledge. Okay, And so I think those theories are what support reformed epistemology. So planning a defense proper functionalism as a theory of warrant that shows, hey, on that theory, belief in God can also be warranted. Mm -hmm. um, so what you got to do to attack reformed epistemology is either attack that normative epistemology theory, attack this theory of warrant or proper function, or try to argue that even if that theory is true, it doesn't follow that belief in God is properly basic. I think that's the thing to do. Yeah. So, so yeah. we, yeah, so you're saying here's your options if you're going to take down reformed epistemology. Um, yeah. We've got these, these theories of what makes a belief justified, what makes a belief uh, rational, what makes a belief warranted. Now, at yeah. this point, when we're just talking about those, we're at the level of the normative, you call it. So we haven't applied it yet to God. We're just talking yeah. about whatever the belief is, here's a theory about what it would take for, for uh, any belief to be justified, rational, warranted. If you think yeah. that reformed epistemology doesn't work, then you need to attack uh, those, uh, yeah. those theories of what makes something justified, rational, or warranted. Or you can say, hey, I'm not going to attack those because I think those are fine. Uh, or let's let's run with them for a minute. Rather, I'm going to attack that those can be applied to belief in God. I'm I'm fine yeah. if those things work for other beliefs, but I don't think that they work for God. And so those are your two options: either attack the theories that undergird it, or attack its application yeah. to God. Yeah, that's right. You know, I should have been writing that down as you were talking to save time. Um, well, what I will do yeah. while you're writing that is if. Yeah. If you are still watching, please yeah. go ahead and start writing your questions in the chat. And Andrew's going to explain this last thing. And then as soon as he finishes, I'm going to start asking your questions. Andrew, are you good to go for maybe about 15 more minutes for questions? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. So uh, go. you can go ahead and explain what you've written on the whiteboard. Yeah. Uh, I feel like doing okay. the Jeopardy music. So <laughs> so, um, these, this terminology is a little more common in ethics. If you've ever taken an ethics course, people will distinguish between normative ethics and applied ethics. A normative ethical theory would be like utilitarianism. Um, act so that you maximize the overall happiness and minimize overall unhappiness. Roughly, that, that's not quite right. But And then once you get your normative theory, then you can apply it to your applied specific uh, exam, um, questions like, abortion, euthanasia, um, and hard applied ethics questions. So you start with your normative theory, and then you try to apply it to specific cases. That's what I want to say you should do in, um, in uh, religious epistemology. You'll have your normative theory, your theory of justification or warrant or knowledge, and then you want to see how it applies to belief in God. Okay, Just directly applying, uh, attacking the applied, um, the religious epistemology, without attacking the normative theory undergirding it is not going to be enough. Um, I'm going to use one ex other example. It's actually much more simple and straightforward than planning is. Um, 
So this is a view called phenomenal conservatism and cons phenomenal conservatism. If it seems that P, then belief in P is justified. That's actually not quite right. It's if it seems as if P, then belief in P is justified in the absence of countervailing evidence. That's mm -hmm. the whole thing. Trying to rush it. So the idea is you're justified in believing what seems true um, in the absence of uh, rebutting or undermining evidence. So what makes me justified in believing that there's a marker here? It seems that there's a marker here. Simple as that, right? Um, and so there's going to be my normative theory. Okay, now we can apply it to um, uh, belief in God. For many theists, does it seem to them, does it strike them, does it seem that God exists? Well, for a lot of them it does, right? So um, now what we've done is we've applied a phenomenal conservatism. And I want to note, phenomenal conservatism is one of uh, the most popular uh, theories of justification around today. Um, the person most famous for defending it, Michael Humer, is actually not a believer in God, uh, but he likes it for independent reasons. And so you have this nice theory of justification, and look, it ends up supporting Reformed epistemology because you get people, it seems to them that God exists. They have a properly basic belief that God exists, properly basic with respect to justification, the sort of phenomenal conservative justification. Now, I'm going to bring Tyus back to uh, the Great Pumpkin Objection. We could ask, on this theory, does, is Linus justified in believing in the Great Pumpkin? We want to, well, first thing we want to ask is, does it seem to him, does it appear to him as if there's a Great Pumpkin? Uh, if no, then we can say, well, that's what theistic belief has, that Linus doesn't. That's one thing we can say. Mm -hmm. Or we could say, suppose it does appear to Linus as if there's a Great Pumpkin. Uh, suppose that that's what, how things seem to him. Uh, well, if so, then his belief is justified, and and there we go. And maybe Linus is justified in believing there is a great pumpkin. I mean, I don't think that's out of question. Uh, the point, though, is, look, the great pumpkin objection should really just be attacking then phenomenal conservatism, right, by saying, by having the implication that Linus is justified in believing in the great pumpkin. But it's not an attack specifically on reformed epistemology. So, uh Nowadays, reformative epistemology is undergirded by a lot of mainstream theories of justification and war. And so that's why I don't think it's going to be going away any anytime soon. It's not just a, a reformed theology view. It's actually a view that's undergirded by, I think, every non-skeptical theory of knowledge or justification that you can name. Mm. So, All right, yeah. very good. So uh, I am going to start asking your questions. We've already got several in the chat. Um, we're good for about another 15 minutes or so. Uh, so let's go ahead and, and start. So at the very beginning of the broadcast, Cameron Bertuzzi uh, asked the following question. And for those that don't know, Cameron Bertuzzi runs Capturing Christianity, the YouTube channel. If you haven't subscribed to his channel, immediately go and do it. Uh, it's better than mine, bigger than mine. Uh, you need to know who Cameron Bertuzzi is. He's doing great work. So, um, he asked, can belief in Mormonism be rational without good arguments? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that for some people it could be. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, I think for people, let's say, if their main um, exposure is just Mormonism, um, then I would say it's definitely going to be like epistemically blameless, so that with respect to what planning a cause deontological um, justification, uh, I wouldn't blame someone 
for believing in Mormonism if that's what they grew up with and that's all they knew. Mm-hmm. Um, so for such people, I think so. Yeah. Um, I think also if the people that they learn about Mormonism from are um, for the most part reliable people and and trustworthy, then that would that would even more justify thinking that their belief is justified. Now here's what would make it unjustified. Um, maybe they start getting evidence against the truth of Mormonism, or maybe they start noticing contradictions and so forth. Then we would want to say it's not justified. But you know, I would say the same thing about Christianity too. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think belief in Mormonism could be properly basic with respect to um, certain epistemic properties. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting because I I know based on the conversation we had uh, last night yeah. and this paper that yeah. we're going to discuss. Uh, yeah, it seems like you, depending on your view of uh, if Mormons are Christians or not, it seems like you uh, may be able to suggest if they don't have the Holy Spirit, then they're not my epistemic yeah. peer, something like that. Uh, yeah. But I, I, that assumes too much of our background that's conversation. Like so, well, that's from my new paper that people know might not know about. But. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think um, I think there tends to be a challenge for religious believers when they come to believe, find out that there are people from other religions who disagree with them. Um, then I think that is a challenge, uh, especially when you think that people from those other religions are also wise and smart and um, ethical. And um, then, uh, yeah, I, I think there's a challenge there. But in my new paper, that's what I try to respond to. So. Okay, so that's just a plug for our future interview. Um, and this is yes. uh, this may relate somewhat to it. So uh, my friend, Chan Arnett, he runs uh, a ministry called Faithful Apologetics. And he said, or he asked, uh, what about Dr. Craig's version of Reformed yeah. epistemology known as Holy Spirit epistemology, where the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are the sons of God from Romans chapter 8. Uh, it says that, that the Holy Spirit does that. And can you explain properly, properly basic belief and testimony? Yeah, sure. Just one second. Oh, okay. Never mind. Um, I thought I might have to deal with something outside the room. Um, yeah. So what planning has is um, we've been focusing specifically just on belief in God and the book planning. wants to argue not only that belief in God is warranted or rational. He wants to also argue that Christian belief uh, including not just beliefs about God, but about Jesus, Jesus rising from the dead, um, Jesus uh, dying for the sins of the world, and you know reconciling the world to God. Um, Plenty wants to argue that belief in all that can be warranted. Now, how are you going to get that? Well, planning is going to argue not by way of sense of a sensus divinitatis. It's going to be by way of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, uh, producing belief in Christianity, and it'll be partly by way of testimony. That's right. So, um, uh, so pl- uh, Craig's model is roughly just planning us, uh, as far as I know. Uh, Craig has some tweaks in there that are a little worrisome to me, but uh, putting those aside, um, I-, I think I think it's fine. So, what uh, planning is going to argue for is if Christian belief is true, then Christian belief is probably warranted. Why well, think that? Because because if Christian belief is true, then there's such a thing as a Holy Spirit who is working in the world and drawing people to God and uh, regenerating and saving people. And in that process, bringing people to have Christian beliefs. Um, now, if the Holy Spirit's involved in that way, then that whole process is going to be a reliable one. And so, um, and by following planning a one form according to 
are uh, properly functioning cognitive mechanisms. Now, the end part of that question was, what about testimony? Um, so I think it's going to depend on which theory of justification and what sort of epistemic property we're talking about. But uh, I think on the whole, from testimony, we do get uh, properly basic beliefs. So um, when I'm little and uh, as soon as I get certain concepts where my dad's like, um, grape, you know, and my mom's like, spoon, you know, and I just come to believe that's a spoon. Uh, there's no <laughs> argument. Really, I just believe there's a spoon, and uh, I think that could be a properly basic belief. Now, some people might try to argue that there's actually um, there are certain people in uh, epistemology testimony that want to say there might be certain beliefs in the background that are doing some work there, um, and I'm open to that too. But it's um, it's not going to be like a rigorous argument that they got. Uh, what they'll have is just some sort of process and background beliefs that help support this belief um, that there's a spoon, there's a grape. Um, so yeah, I think testimony for the most part can give us probably be please. Okay. Uh, the next question comes from Domingos Fe uh, Feria, maybe. Um, oh, he, I think we're Facebook friends. Yes. Okay. Uh, he said question about premise two in the mm -hmm. paper, your, the recent work in reformed epistemology paper. Uh, Andrew said that premise two can be replaced by the following premise. If Christian theism is true, then it simply follows that one of God's intentions is to have mature relationship with us. That is part of the Christian story. Yes. And then he says, however, the Christian story de uh, description is a result of interpretations of fallible, cognitively limited human beings. So okay. given those limitations, how can we know what God, all things considered, and he emphasized that part, all things considered, desires and intends. It seems beyond our kin. Yeah. I have this very faint memory that Domingos might have talked with me. We might have emailed about this at some point in the past, uh, but it would have would have been years ago. Uh, so right now, Domingos is citing from my other paper, um, the paper that's on skeptical theism. And one of the things I do, um, so not the full philosophy compass paper, this is another paper. And... Um, in there, I do suggest what he said. If Christianity is true, then um, um, let's see. What there would be a Holy Spirit. Can you can you read that part again? If Christianity is true, yeah, he's he's saying let's run planning his argument, but just for Christianity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So if if Christian theism is true, then it simply follows that one of God's intentions is to have mature relationship with us. That yeah. is part of the yeah. Christian story. Right, right. Okay, now let's have that premise in mind, or keep that proposition in mind. Now, Domingos is saying some people might misinterpret what Christianity is. Yes. Um, okay, grant that. Um, what matters to me, is though, is what I mean by Christianity in that proposition. So I, I don't have to use the word Christianity. I could just say Shmishtianity um, or Andrew Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but that view, okay, that's held by a lot of Christians today, uh, whether it's correctly interpreted or not, I'm just saying, if that view is true, then belief in that view, uh, and including belief in God, uh, is going to be produced in this good way, because it's part of that story that God would have um, uh, created us to have, uh, or would have would have intended for us to have these mature uh, relationships with him. Mm -hmm. 
I have to go back and look at the paper. But so I think the interpreting Christianity part, it might be, it doesn't actually show that that conditional is false. Um, it might be saying that we're misinterpreting what Christianity is. That's fine. But for the truth of that premise, I just need, um, if blah, blah, blah is true, then uh, such and such. Uh, I don't really need the word Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, I can just say, if that thing is true, then belief in God is going to turn out rational. Got it. Um, yeah. Okay, so then the next question from uh, Anthony Rowden said, if belief in God is a properly basic belief, do you take yeah. it to be one that can be defeated, or is it uh, is it an intrinsic defeater of defeaters? Uh, yeah, so this is the thing. Uh, planning that talks about it like once early on, and then he doesn't talk about it much again, but it's something that Craig has talked a lot about, these intrinsic defeater defeaters. Um, so I, well, one thing I'm going to point out is I think it's going to be, be dependent on the theist. Okay. So I think some theists, okay. So I think some theists might just come to believe in God. Um, but, uh, as you know, uh, it might be in the way they came to believe in God. Um, the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with it. Supposing Christianity is true, um, then the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with it. For such people, um, they could easily get defeaters. Um, they could just get some, you know, arguments against God, uh, the argument from evil we talked about earlier or whatever. So that's not that interesting. What's a little more interesting is let's take the sort of person that Planning or William Lane Craig would want to talk about, someone who has the Holy Spirit residing in their heart, mm-hmm. you know, whisper to them the truths of uh, well, all sorts of good things. Um, and then they get some potential defeaters. Okay. Now, I understand what um, Craig is saying, and maybe planning in the past, I had to go check, is that um, no matter what counter evidence they get, the Holy Spirit will kind of just like overwrite it. And that's going to be the intrinsic defeater defeater. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So my official view on that is I'm agnostic about whether that could be the case, um, that you could have these intrinsic defeater defeaters. Uh, here's some one or two things I would say uh, pro and con. Um, on the con side, I just think, suppose I believe uh, some proposition P, okay? Uh, Here so comes the white boy. I, I, I believe P, okay? And then suppose, so that's my belief. But then suppose I, somebody gets me to believe uh, my belief in P is formed unreliably. Okay, I believe P, and then somebody gets me to believe that my belief that P is formed unreliably. Mm-hmm. I'll take this out. So they they do a kind of debunking argument on you. That's right. Yeah. Um, now I think as long as you have this belief and you have support for it then your belief that P is defeated. It's not justified anymore. Um, you're stuck. So suppose I believe in Christianity and all that, but then somebody gives me convincing evidence that I just took a pill, and the pill is Christian belief-forming pill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a crazy pill, but whoever eats it uh, ends up believing in Christianity. They even show me video evidence of people, um, and even makes them um, have these false memories that they felt the Holy Spirit in their heart and so forth. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, and you see other people taking Muslim pills and like Judaism pills, and you see them like firmly believing Islam or firmly believing in Judaism. 
So I, I think that if I came to believe that I took that pill, um, I think my belief's just defeated. And like the Holy Spirit, it's not going to, like, it doesn't matter as long as I believe that my belief in Christianity is formed by this pill. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so that's what's making me, going to make me doubt that some people might have these intrinsic defeater defeaters. The part of me that resists that is um, the sort of thing, actually, Jordan, you and I talked about this yesterday. There are some beliefs that are just so clear to us that it doesn't matter what counter evidence there is. Um, they just can't be defeated. And things like that are like, uh, if I feel intense pain, like, um, you know, you put my hand up to a fire, like, ah, right? And then somebody says, actually, your belief is formed by a pill, and you're not actually feeling pain. I'm just going like, no, I still feel pain, because the pain's just right in front of me. Mm-hmm. So in that, I would say a belief like that is, um, might just not be able to get defeated. Um, and perhaps the Holy Spirit can minim- mimic that degree of clarity. Uh, for the belief. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that would be something like intrinsic defeater defeater. The thing about it, though, is I still think once you get this belief, you got the defeater. So uh, um, that's my overall view. So I, I lean a little more toward denying the intrinsic defeater defeater stuff yeah. that Craig and Plant talks about. Yeah. I would comment, but I'm, I'm going to take a back seat and, and move on. So, all right. Uh, the next one is 20 faces. If I understand this correctly, whether the belief in God is rational, according to this theory, talking about Reformed epistemology, um, then Reformed epistemology relies on how good the arguments for what God desires for us are. Is this not post hoc reasoning? Um, Reformed epistemology might depend on reformed epistem. Okay, so Plan is reformed epistemology, where he's defending certain claims about belief in God with respect to warrant, where warrant is understood in terms of proper function. That version of reformed epistemology, yes, will depend on things that God wants. Other versions of reformed epistemology, like the phenomenal conservatism or the deontological justification version, or maybe even the proper function rationality version. Those aren't going to depend. See how much we've learned in this hour and a half. But uh, those are not going to depend on um, forming beliefs about what God will want. Now, here's another point, though. That might go more directly to what the questioner is asking. Notice the the Reformed epistemology is not saying that you have to know all this stuff about what God wants in order for your belief in God or somebody's belief in God to be rational. What Plantinga's argument does is it shows how, let's say, my grandma— who doesn't know about arguments for God's existence, but my grandma, you know, went to church, um, uh, you know, saying to the Lord, you know, believed in God. Um, uh, her belief could be rational because it's produced by these properly functioning common mechanisms, but she doesn't have to know about all this stuff. She doesn't have to know that God designed her in a certain way. She doesn't have to know that she has a sensitive initatus or anything like that. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, um, it would be, I guess, in some way bad in a circular way if I had to depend on these beliefs about what God wants in order to justify my belief in God. Mm-hmm. That might be bad, although I'm not sure it's bad. Um, but I, um, it's just relevant to that other paper we keep talking about. Uh, but, uh, um, but that's not what we're saying. We're saying the belief in God is not based on any argument at all. Um, gotcha. Okay, so then uh, the questions keep keep coming in so i'm i'm gonna try uh let's try to rapidly ask these okay and answer these answer to yeah uh okay so um one second 
where was I at? Oh, Comrade Peep said, doesn't the fact that atheists exist indicate that either God doesn't necessarily want to be known or that he has other desires on top of wanting to be known? In either case, it's a problem for Reformed epistemology, right? Um, okay, so by Reformed epistemology, he's talking about planning a specific version. Okay, and then he might be um, attacking premise two. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Um, that if God wants us to know him, then he would intend for us to know him. Now, I've already said that I also disagree with premise two for skeptical theist reasons. That might actually sound like what the uh, person was asking. So, um, so I think part of my response is, sure, great. I'm glad we agree. Um, but I'm not sure if I agree with every part of that. So, so the um, part that, yeah. yeah. Uh, Maybe, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it seems to me like he's, He's asking, like, just because atheists exist, because yeah. there are people that believe there is no God, I've probably just got in trouble with a bunch of them. They'll, they'll correct me and say, no, I just lack a belief. Well, whatever. However we define this. Um, because there are people like that, that either lack a belief in God or believe God does not exist. Um, because they exist, that suggests that that premise uh, in planning his argument is, I guess, false. To that seems to be what he's saying. Where God, uh, either God has you know uh, intentions that override him, his wanting us to know him, or he just doesn't really care if, if we know him or not. Uh, and it sounds like that is very. It's almost like this is like a hiddenness objection, almost like why does why would God, if he wants uh, to be in relationship with us, why would he hide? Uh, himself, uh, at least from some people, and I'll mention this, uh, and you can you can add something if you want. For the hiddenness element that's in this argument, I think we've already answered the kind of skeptical theist part earlier in our discussion. But for the hiddenness element in this art, in your question, comrade Peep, I would reference you to two interviews that I've done. One was with Liz Jackson recently, and Liz is in the chat. It was called "Wagering Against Divine Hiddenness." Uh, was the title of that interview. Um, go check that out. And also go check out my interview with Blake Junta. It was literally called, Why Does God Hide From Us If He Wants Relationship With Us? So I think you've got two things going on in this question, like a skeptical theist element and a hiddenness objection element. Check it out. Let me move on, unless you have something quick to throw in. Um, yeah, really quick. For it to show that Reformed epistemology has a problem, it had to... Um, so planning is wondering about the epistemic status of people who do believe in God. Okay, for such people, we're going to wonder: Are the cognitive faculties producing their belief properly functioning or not? Right. So, so uh, planning this argument is intended to be about the people that do believe in God, and then whether God intended for them to form true beliefs about God. Um, but then uh, that's really what the argument's about. But it might be that God didn't intend other people to form belief in God for separate reasons. Um, now that question is, I actually did talk about that in that, um, I need to, we need to just, the, the skeptical theism paper, mm-hmm. I have a section on this. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's more to say, but maybe we should just move on, um, since we've been on it for a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So a couple more questions here, maybe three more, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, I don't know how quickly you can answer this. Anthony Rowden asked, uh, what do you think is, in fact, the most formidable objection to Reformed epistemology? 
So you described like, hey, here's a strategy for how to attack it. But like, do you think that there is an objection that you think is, is even if you don't think it works, do you, what's the most formidable one? Yeah. So since now that the audience understands that there's many versions of reformed epistemology, depending on what sort of epistemic property we have, I, or I think um, uh, it might be that um, some versions of reformed epistemology are on stronger grounds and some of them are on weaker grounds. Okay. So um, the ones I might be more worried about is um, there's some theories of knowledge or warrant that depend on, on not our proper function, but on other things that uh, I'm just going to blot out words without explaining them because we're short on time. <laughs> Things like uh, the safety condition, sensitivity condition, uh, uh, that, that people think are, might be necessary for knowledge or warrant. And it might be a little less clear whether those conditions are met um, um, by theistic beliefs, uh, theistic basic beliefs. Um, I think probably they are, but uh, um, I think maybe from that realm there might be an objection. But on the whole, I, I, I think... Reformed epistemology is just on such firm grounds right now. So. Yeah. Okay, so um, let's see. Comrade Peep asked, if the rationality of the belief in good is rooted in some innate God-given feeling, then doesn't that mean that non-believers cannot recognize this rationality? Um, I guess my quick answer is, why would that be? Uh, yeah, it's, I, I don't I, know I'm not sure if I'm following the question. So uh, maybe you yeah. want to clarify, Comrade Peep. Uh, Tim Saunders yeah. asked, um, would it be rational, based on the history of human beliefs and practices over time, to project that in the future these present views are likely to be debunked? Um yeah, I guess what they would have to show me is what that history is. I guess maybe uh, to, he has in mind, like, you know, people believed in, like, Zeus and Thor and these kinds of gods. And, you know, now those are largely rejected. And so he's saying, you know, if, if you, I think anyway, if maybe if you extrapolate, you know, many, many, many uh, millennia from now, will the kind of religious beliefs we have now be thought of as... Uh, you know, irrational, something like that. Yeah, uh, I think the quick answer is no. <laughs> I, I mean, I think if you if you look at the world through an atheist lens, that's how. I I don't know if the person is an atheist, but if you just look at it naturalistically, you could kind of see that, like, oh, there's all these gods that are believes and believed, and they slowly drop out. Um, but uh, that's yeah. Okay, sorry, I thought there's. Um, um, sorry, I got, I lost my train of thought, but, uh, um, I guess what I would say about current theistic belief is you'd have to show that we are in that, um, I, I'd be interested in knowing why that would be in the same situation. I mean, we have like different sets of evidence now, uh, that we didn't have, uh, and this might actually appeal to the arguments for God's existence too. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, um, I guess I would want to see the argument a little more clearly though, um, yeah, yeah, like laid out in a premise form that leads. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. let me move on to Liz. Yes. A little more too. Yeah. Let me let me move on to Liz's question here, Jordan. A question that came up in the discussions above that might be worth addressing: Does reformed epistemology mean atheists aren't properly functioning? Ah. Uh, um. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't think so. And here's why. Um. Well, one, they might be still properly functioning in other ways. Like, planning a jokes, 
it's not like he thinks that atheists don't know how to like eat or drink or you know mm-hmm. go wake up and go go to work. Uh, so it might be that you, uh, you might have to say that they're uh, a, a theist of the planet type might say either they're not properly functioning with respect to one bit of their cognitive functioning, um, or uh, you might have to say that the proper environment triggers have not been met for their faculties. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think you can go either way. But I will point out that I think the atheist could say something about the theist. I mean, um, atheists have to say there's these theists that are forming beliefs in religious things. And so if I were an atheist, I might even be tempted to think there's some hallucinatory mechanism that religious believers have that's also either not properly functioning or truth-aimed. So one of Planning's conclusion is both the theist and the atheist have to think that something's going wrong with the other side. Um, something's triggering something oddly um, in their brains that are either making them believe in religion or making them, um, like, keeping them from believing in religion. That concludes my interview with Dr. Moon. I really appreciate him coming on. And if you would like to support the work that I'm doing on this channel, especially if you're someone that finds it valuable, please consider becoming one of my patrons. You can do that by going to www.patreon.com slash theanalyticchristian. The link is in the notes on this video. Thank you very much for listening, and I will see you next time.